0: Hello everyone, welcome back to Vetfolio Voice. On this episode sponsored by Elenco, I was joined by Dr. Marcellin Little to talk about a favorite topic of mine, arthritis. Now, despite my love of arthritis discussions, I'll admit a part of me was a little nervous going into this one. I knew our talk was gonna focus on some of the ways that we can better manage arthritis in our patients, and. I was a little worried I was going to go into this talk and find out I've been doing it all wrong. So I'm happy to report at the end here that my fear was completely unfounded. Dr. Marcelin Little was absolutely lovely and our talk centered a lot around prevention and client communication. I have to say, I learned so much talking to him. Let me go ahead and introduce him and we can get into our talk. Dr. Marcelin Little has been a veterinary orthopedic surgeon for the last 25 years, currently at the University of California, Davis, and formerly at North Carolina State University. Being at the forefront of the management of complex orthopedic problems and in sports medicine and physical rehabilitation, Dr. Marcelin Little had a transformative influence on the field of veterinary orthopedics. He developed novel methods to manage complex limb deformities, he participated in the development of several total joint replacement implants and has evaluated the long-term response to several total hip prostheses in dogs. Dr. Marcel and Little became involved in 3D printing in 2002 to better plan the correction of limb deformities. Since then, he's developed a range of novel applications of 3D printing and has published approximately 20 studies focused on the aspects of three-dimensional modeling and printing. Since then, he's developed a range of novel applications of 3D printing and has published approximately 20 studies focused on aspects of three-dimensional modeling and printing. His innovations include the development of 3D printed transdermal osseointegrated implants for amputees and the development, production, and implantation of 3D printed total knee replacement implants to manage patients with tumors of the knee region. Dr. Marcelin Little has taught approximately 200 courses in rehabilitation, joint replacement, deformity correction, and fracture management. He's lectured at more than 100 national and international meetings. Dr. Marcelin Little has been a primary mentor to more than 20 surgery residents and more than 20 engineering graduate students. He's published approximately 130 research studies. And I have to say, I'm kind of glad that I didn't read this bio before our talk, because that's a really impressive bio. But let me tell you, Dr. Marcellin Little, he was just a very humble and down-to-earth person to talk to. He was just great. Let's go ahead and get into it. All right. So for this episode, I am joined by Dr. Marcellin Little. And I'm really excited because we're talking about one of my favorite topics, and that's arthritis management. And I'm particularly excited because we have a lot of focus today on how we can adjust our plans to our individual patients and what we can do better in our arthritis management plans. So Dr. Marcellin Little, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have you here.
1: I'm happy to be here too. Thank you.
0: So, we, you know, we talk a lot about osteoarthritis, but let's go back to the beginning, focus on the basics here. As far as the, the overall impact of osteoarthritis, what exactly does osteoarthritis do to our patients?
1: Osteoarthritis is a disease of the joint. It's not uh, contagious from one joint to another, but it's often seen in several joints, particularly the opposite limb in, you know, if you find osteoarthritis in one hip joint, for example, you're likely to have it in the opposite hip. And if you find it in an elbow, it's quite possible. It's going to be in the opposite elbow. It's also possible to have it in both the hips and the elbows, because these are fairly common sites, if something is common. You know, two diseases. Each of them is common. You might have both of them without having a sense that one is kind of jumping from one to the other. What's What's happening in in many joints with osteoarthritis is that there is a problem uh, with the joint fairly early in life. And there are two kinds of problems. One can be that it's uh, it's uh, unstable. The joint is not really. Uh, tight enough, uh, the joint surfaces, you know, are, are go moving away from each other, and joints are not meant to be working that way. Or it's uh, subluxated; it's uh, meaning it's kind of always in the wrong position. And cartilage is amazingly strong and durable, very, very resilient over long periods of time, cartilage can be healthy for a lifetime, but cartilage is not very good at dealing with either instability or subluxation. Cartilage works really well when things are lined up, but not very well at all and not for very long when things are not lined up. In fact, it only takes a few weeks, maybe at most a few months for the cartilage to really be damaged by instability or subluxation. So what's going on with OA, if you have instability of subluxation or maybe some big trauma or an accident, but that's much less common than those other things, is that you're going to have a physiologic change, you know, the little chemical reactions that are happening, what is called the homeostasis, the stability of the cartilage, how much cartilage is lost versus how much kind of new cartilage is formed or healed. Is gonna be out of balance, and 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 inflammation is gonna set in. Some cells are gonna come in to try to help, but they they don't do a good job in that environment, and so that uh, often, unfortunately, the cause of the problem when we talk about instability or subluxation persists. So that cycle of inflammation and destruction. Is going to progress over time. So it starts by being a disease of, you know, a little chemical reaction, a very nerdy disease, if you want, microscopic disease. But really, the damage progresses over time. And then you can see it from the outside if you pay attention. It becomes a physical disease, like the joint might be a little swollen in a six month old Labrador Retriever's elbow with early elbow dysplasia. You're going to see swelling. Well, swelling is already an enormous change from the physiology where the the inflammation is so profound that you know the joint is full of fluid. It's really kind of a serious thing. And yet we look at it like it's just the very beginning of something or most most of the time it's annoying everybody, the owner and the clinician. So they say, well let's just wait and see, you know, and the the natural optimism of thinking that things are gonna get better. Well you know, it's very serious problem for a joint to be swollen, and there is something underlying that might not be super easy to find. And so, we kind of ignore it, and we say, "Oh, swelling will probably go down over time," and it will do as the joint continue to go- to get worse. The capsule around it will get thicker, and so on. So, the physical change that we see might be a pain response to movement of the joint when we manipulate it. The joint might feel a little rough or irregular. We call that crepitus. It could be swollen or it could be thickened. Uh, Those would be kind of classic physical changes. And then really long time later, unless it's a very severe way, a long time later, we're going to see changes in demeanor for the dog, changes in behavior an unwillingness to climb for example because climbing is often hard you got to you know hoist yourself up a, a steps or a series of steps if you th- if you're a middle-sized dog and you have to climb steps that would be a, like us climbing some pretty a little hill if you want you know steps are much higher because dogs are much smaller than us the steps are designed for people not for dogs. And so climbing steps, getting into an SUV. SUVs were clearly not invented by dogs because <laughs> they are very, very high relative to a dog. It's like us climbing into some giant big truck that, you know, that's 10 feet off the ground. So same idea. Dogs are very excited to go somewhere in a car, but they don't like to climb into an SUV. So the changes in demeanor, uh, we say, oh, the dog is, has lost interest in in playing. They're less excited. They don't come to greet me at the door. Well, those are the, the functional changes. The, the activities of daily living are just much more challenging for dogs. So that makes osteoarthritis quite complex because we can really have three discussions about everything in osteoarthritis. The physiologic changes, how can we impact them? The physical changes, when are we going to find them and, you know, what they are, what they represent, and the functional changes. But really, the owner doesn't come to you for a physiology lesson or even a physical exam lesson. They come to you because their dog is no longer able or willing to climb stairs or to get into the car or is no longer playing. And conversely, when we do a good job managing osteoarthritis, the owner... Again, they're not going to think, oh, physiologically they did this or physically they did that. They're going to say, oh, my dog is more playful. My dog is more active. My dog is acting like a puppy. I hear that all the time. They're not acting like a puppy. They're acting like who they are because they weren't acting like who they are when they had osteoarthritic pain.
0: I love that explanation and the focus on, you know, getting that that's sort of deliverable for the owner but understanding the complexity of what has happened leading up to this and that by the time we're seeing these physical changes that you know illustrating that something serious has already happened and we need to make sure that we're taking that seriously and taking appropriate steps because it you know like you said that you know that swelling will eventually go down and sometimes it can be easy to sort of play ostrich and go, you know, let's let's see what happens, let's wait. And I think that was just a great explanation to illustrate why maybe that's not the best approach and there's a lot of very serious, very complex things going on in this joint. Yes. So, thinking about these physical changes, for example, so radiographic findings. Sometimes we can take x-rays on a dog and you know, their joints can just be terrible. And then, you, you know, you see him walk around the clinic and you talk to the owner and they're like, you know, really not noticing that much of a difference at home versus, you know, I'll, I'll use my own dog as an example. He goes and runs around a little bit and all of a sudden we have a back leg shaking and I took x-rays on him and they honestly didn't look too bad. So why do you think that is that we can, that some dogs seem to be more functionally affected than other dogs?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question and a complicated one. So I'll try to be as brief as I can. Uh, The relationship of all these things, you know, the physiologic, the physical and the functional, they're not that simple because first, you know, different dogs have different bodies and some bodies are easier to move around than other bodies. Like you're a border collie, you're just lucky, you know, you're not too big, not too small, you're nice and square, your legs are long, you reasonably slender most of the time and if you're a bulldog you just you know you're about the same height and length and as a border collie but you just was you know you're born unlucky if you want because you you're really heavy and your legs are working really hard because you're you know you have a big round body and you weigh a, a ton and uh So conformation clearly is going to affect if you have the same amount of joint disease in in a Border Collie and a Bulldog, you're going to have a different impact because locomotion is a little bit different. Also, you know, you may have different background and you may be fitter. And so there are, you know, you don't know a lot. We don't know a lot in general, and dogs tend to be a lot fitter than people in average. You know, they, they move better and they are reasonably good athletes, but, you know, not all of them. The joints themselves are quite different from each other. You could look at maybe extremes, for example, a shoulder that's kind of loose and moves in all kinds of direction, is held together by muscles, but the, the articular surface themselves are, uh, for example, the, the top of it, the glenoid of the scapula is pretty compact and, you know, kind of a little dome, but it's it's loose. It's a loose joint. You know, you can move it a lot and it's held together with a lot of you know, the collateral ligaments and some muscles are helping it stay together. Some other joints are super tight and always stay extremely close to each other. The elbow, for example, or the ankle, not a, not a lot of room to, to move. They are hinged. They are really tight. And so it seems like if you have a arthritis in a tight joint and you have any kind of change to the surface of the joint, or uh, you're going to have you know, in my practical experience, they're going to be uh, less forgiving. That you're going to you're going to pay a higher price if you have osteoarthritis in the elbow or the ankle than if you have it in the shoulder, and you know some of the. The stories, uh, there was a big old study uh, that looked at a, a large number of Labrador, and many of them had osteoarthritis in the shoulder and it, that was a little bit of a surprise. You know, you can have osteoarthritis in your shoulder and it flies under the radar. You also have to think about how these joints are being used. So the front leg carries you know, roughly twice as much weight as the back leg. And also some joints are really used very close to their full movement. So you can think about most of the movement of joints is going to be kind of bending and extending, flexing and extending. And so some joints are going to be used very close to the full extension. For example, I'm thinking about the elbow, maybe the wrist, the carpus. And so if you're used at the very end of movement, you're also going to be more vulnerable to signs because when you have an arthritic joint, usually the middle of the movement of a joint is less painful. You're not stretching the tissues as much, particularly the joint capsule. So you are going to be, you know, tolerating osteoarthritis much better if if the part, that particular joint may be something like the hip. The hip joint is used in the middle of its range all the time and most of the time, I mean. And so you can do reasonably well with uh, uh, some uh, osteoarthritis in the hip if you are uh, stretching that joint capsule fully so if you are for example a hip and you try to jump up a lot or gallop then you're going to stretch your joint capsule more and the signs boom suddenly the signs are there and so the combination of conformation weight bearing and active range of motion through the daily activities is going to greatly influence what we really see on the outside or the functional consequences of osteoarthritis, even though physiologically a hip can be more damaged than an elbow, it might look very different from the surface or while, when a dog is trying to do its daily activities.
0: I never really thought about it from that perspective. And it seems so clear when you explain it that way, why we would see some dogs more affected than others. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
1: And you know, if you're thinking about osteoarthritis uh, as one disease, you know, like, you know, I don't know there, I'm sure there's no, there are no simple disease, but some disease probably, they affect one thing that's very specific and they're, they can be, a, you know, you have a fever. You can have a low fever or a high fever, and maybe fever is fairly simple. At least, you know, what you know, it's based on your temperature. But osteoarthritis, in this case, you 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 know, you, if you think, oh, I'm going to treat it this way, I'm always treating osteoarthritis with this. Well, you are not doing. You're gonna you're gonna do something wrong. You know, to to you know, half of your patients or or more, because. Some don't need the treatment you're thinking of, and some need more than the treatment you're thinking of. If you do very little, you're going to really not serve well the ones that are severely affected. And if you do too much, then you're going to do more therapy that's needed. So you really, I mean, the message here is to say, don't think of osteoarthritis as one disease. Think of it as a spectrum, a range of problems and be ready to use the management options that you have differently, Uh, maybe more options for some than others or different options along the way. So you you, you adapt your treatments, intensity, duration to uh, what you are dealing with.
0: Yes, and that is why we're here to to have that discussion of how we can do that and how we can view these patients as individuals and these diseases as individual processes and kind of tailor our treatment plans. so let's let's talk about that. Let's get into that. When we do have a patient, for example, who's in a lot of pain, how would you recommend we alter our treatment plan?
1: Well the first thing you maybe try to do is to see what might have triggered that pain because, you know, osteoarthritis, Uh, go wax and wanes, it will, you know, you will have maybe a period of calm and then you may trigger a symptom flare by doing something. You know, sometimes people, I've had clients tell me every time I throw a Frisbee, my dog runs after the Frisbee. He limps for three days and I'm thinking, good, well, (laughs) at least we know what not to do. Even though people are always, you know, they don't like to change at all, but uh, maybe I can... And we can get going on preventing the symptom flare. So that's uh, probably the wisest thing. Ergonomics, try to adapt things and and, and say, let's just do something else that's going to be equally fun. And maybe that's not going to tr- trigger a symptom flare. Obviously, you know, it's a little bit like... Uh, you know what is used in human medicine uh, rice when you twist your ankle uh, you know you rest uh, you you know you compression elevation and, and ice or something so you could say well those things are probably reasonable you want to rest you wanna potentially you could use cold therapy because it's very safe but it doesn't go very deep in the body so it would really work for superficial joints and then we're very fortunate we have non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication that are clearly unequivocally effective at alleviating inflammation. And inflammation, in this case, is an important part of that cycle of, you know, up and down uh, signs that we're going to see. So we have to use our non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. They, they you know, once in a while, they, they we will have an adverse event, but we're talking a few percent of patients are going to have a problem. So, um, you know, out of 100, maybe three, two, three patients might have a problem statistically. That's what the literature says. So, but, you know, 100 dogs are going to feel better. They will, it will, we know it alleviates inflammation. So as we alleviate inflammation, we, we restart normal activities and we want to make sure that we, and maybe we've modified our behavior a little bit doesn't have to be dramatic changes but a little bit to say let's make sure the next uh, symptom flare doesn't come too quickly and uh, you know your life is between flares and then you 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 take it easy during your flare so that's a kind of a good plan for for a lifetime of you know of management where you say we're going to you know now we're talking about something a little bit different from looking at a dog once a year on a set date, if you want, is you ha- we have to have a little bit of a relationship, we got to be able to talk to each other. So maybe somebody in our clinic will be the case manager and they can be contacted as needed. We want to make sure that we don't give this anti-inflammatory for, for too short a period of time. For example, we don't want the symptoms to or the signs to come back as soon as we stop the anti-inflammatory. So we want to pay again, we want to pay attention to what happens at the end. We want also, we don't want a dog that's just depressed and unable to perform their activities after we give the anti-inflammatory, maybe we can rebuild fitness and strength. And so you see how we, we're now starting to think about osteoarthritis a little bit differently where we say it's, it's about maintaining your mobility and your your joy, your enthusiasm, your, your playfulness. and And we are going to continue to exercise. We are just going to be a little bit more smart and we're not going to say, you know, exercise is catching a Frisbee, exercise can be a lot of different things. And we're going to try to choose the the ones, you know, several are possible, but they're going to be the ones that, you know, work better for this particular situation.
0: So I hear you and I, I am completely on board. And I'm thinking to some of the client conversations that I'm anticipating Maybe that's not a good thing to do, you know, go into every conversation, eyes wide open. So I guess conversations I've had with people in the past where the frisbee is a good example of no exercise is chasing a frisbee and and that can be a challenging conversation, but maybe even more so getting people on board with, oh, they're just getting older, they're just slowing down is not really normal, that there's a lot that we can do for those pets. Oh, they can't get in the car anymore, but that's okay. I can help them. And, and you know, of course they can, but to say, but that's an indication of pain. I'm, I'm also thinking of the hurdles of, well, they don't cry out and, you know, all the sort of roadblocks that will hit in those conversations where you and I know this is not normal. We can, we can help this pet, but the owner's perception is there's nothing wrong, so there's nothing we need to treat. How do you handle those conversations?
1: With the same difficulties than you have, because I think they are never easy to, it's never easy to debunk a myth. You know, Myth become deeply rooted. And what you just did is, you know, those are, you know, basically some of fundamental myth, if you want, that people have about osteoarthritis. So, you know, and I'm th- for me, the number one myth is that osteoarthritis is a geriatric disease. So I think you you are already behind, if you want, if you haven't discussed this myth ahead of time. So like really your best chance is to say, you know, dogs are naturally passionate about, you know, their owners and their, uh, they, they love people most dogs are <laughs> going to be joyful and friendly and and they they don't live as long as people but they should they, they are built to 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 last as long as they live so you know there are plenty of dogs that are old and are still moving extremely well and so we want to talk about the fact that osteoarthritis often is really not a geriatric disease that it shows up earlier in life and that it's not normal for a dog to be five or six years old and being unable to climb stairs if they were climbing stairs before uh, it's uh, it's abnormal for a dog to be unable to to go on a walk or become an exercise intolerant you know the enthusiasm doesn't go down with time but um uh, and so you know it's much easier i think to discuss to educate along the way you know seeing owners regularly for these checks particularly if they are at risk you know we know risk basically in different breeds and different conformation we have great statistics available online from you know testing organization like the orthopedic foundation for animals we'll will put out the number of. Problems they see in you know things like hips and elbows and even patella, and you're gonna see what what breeds are at risk, and you gotta you know you gotta pay attention to that. If your dog breed is in the top five, or if you know, if they have twenty or thirty percent chance to get a problem, you know twenty or thirty percent chance to have a problem in... A pretty high chance to have it. So if you see that you are at risk, or if you know you're at risk, you got to discuss that ahead of time. So, you what you don't want is a a debate in the moment. It's too late to convince. So you don't want to be pushing to elicit pushback. You want to be and place yourself as a as an advisor. You know before before the moment of crisis. If you want, you want to talk about osteoarthritis much earlier and and. You want these signs to be recognized for what they are by being discussed ahead of time. So, you know, if somebody comes and, and is arguing with you, you're not going to win. But if you have a chance to plant a seed in their mind months to years ahead of time, generally years ahead of time, you you have a chance to have them think the way you do. And And also, you know, we don't have to agree on everything. We can... Propose, you know, we are talking about non steroidal anti inflammatory medications. They are so important because, in there, there are studies where, you know, there's one I recall where a thousand dogs took an NSAID, and, you know, most people found their dogs to be happier and more active, and most vets found the dogs to be less lame and less painful. So, explaining that uh, type of research uh, to an owner again beforehand is a very wise thing to do. We should be prepared for what happened. If if the owner is surprised, if the owner is not educated, it's very hard to learn and deal with the problem at the same time, those things should be separated. The learning should happen first and dealing with the problem should happen later.
0: I love that approach, that planting the seed. I take that approach in, in several of the, you know, kind of chronic things that we see and I, I think you're exactly right. It works so well when we can just say, hey, you know, we're going to be talking about this at some point. So don't let that surprise you. And then it doesn't seem so scary. It doesn't seem like you're telling them there's something wrong with their dog when a problem does arise.
1: Oh, blame them. Everybody has a sense of guilt because their dog is not moving well. Or the dog has become overweight. You know, that often happen. And again, I tell people it's easier to stay slender than to lose weight. So Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, the problem is weight gain, not weight loss in a sense. So maybe we, you know, we want to tackle that. You know, it's much easier to tackle that progressively and early, particularly right around a a neutering if you want, because we, we know that that's a period of risk for weight gain. So again, this is an example of saying if we really have a finger on the pulse for weight gain, maybe we'll never get to the point where we are... You know, we have some heroic efforts needed to to lose enormous amount of weight. And I bring that up because that's going to be, you know, we've we've already been talking about really the key, the the profoundly effective things uh, in osteoarthritis. They, They revolve around your fitness, your body condition. Uh, your exercise and your and the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Everything else is wonderful. I mean, I love it, but it doesn't do nearly as much. It's it's more of a distraction than those three things. You know, your body condition, your exercise, and your NSAIDs are really the key to to success.
0: And talking about your exercise, I wanted to talk to you about some of the the things that we are learning about exercise. And maybe I'm the one that's just learning these. Maybe this has been common knowledge for a while. But some of what I've heard recently when it comes to exercise is we're not talking about, you know, taking your dog to the dog park and letting him run like a, you know, crazy man for two hours once a week. This is more Steady, daily, low-impact exercise is that right? Is am I understanding that correctly?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you. I think that's fair to say that some exercise is is presents a higher risk than other exercise. So, you know, we realize now from the human literature, our our clinical trials in dogs and cats are. Uh, you know, they are kind of w- relatively thin the literature, if you want, and our trials are. You know, I did a trial, and I worked hard to get sixty dogs in there to to look at their hip joints. They were Labradors, and you know, I'm I'm kind of proud of what we found, but you know, it doesn't really have the depth and and the size of of a human clinical trials on a, on osteoarthritis. So, in my trial, I found an association between exercising more and limping less it was it was not really you know concluding that one really triggers the other it was just looking at both of those like there is an association between uh, moving more and limping less so clearly moving more on the human side is in your best interest and exercising more uh, an exercise trial if you want has a profound impact it's it's as effective as an NSAID that's saying a lot you know these are things that remove a lot of the signs and it actually lasts for in on the human side i'm thinking specifically about the human knee exercise programs offer benefits for two to four months after after their end if they end and you don't have to end them you can just continue to exercise so very common joint, and you know it looks a bit like human, os- uh, like dog osteoarthritis, the, the human knee, in a number of ways that some people are very painful and for long periods of time, and some people toler- tolerate it much better. And and again, there is a lot of clinical trials on that, so we learn from from those trials, intensity that you were mentioning is more complicated because it seems from the human literature that actually exercising and so on, the human literature, they are going to look at how intense uh, an exercise is based on whether you are above 75% of your maximum heart rate. And actually intensity is is not a bad thing for osteoarthritis, but it's more like the trauma, if you want, uh, created by the exercise. So we're going to look at the exercise and say you know, is that an exercise that's done and that's going to require stretching your joint capsule through extremes if you want. So now it it doesn't make as much sense to do your exercise. But don't be afraid of of intensity during exercise. Or you could say, you know, I I remember a very interesting human study that looked at a parallel clinical trial in water and on land and found that, you know, the, the functional benefits were, Actually, equal in the two. So, you know, exercising in water while well, it can be it can greatly enhance your ability to exercise. If you really are uh, suffering, if you can barely lift yourself up and you go in water, you're going to do much better. But exercising the the in this particular human study, exercising on land actually offered functional results that were longer lasting. In some way, they were more robust than if you were exercising in water. I read that paper and I'm thinking they're both beneficial. And if you can exercise on land, then do so, because that's really what you are training yourself to do. So you probably will benefit from that. You know, you're doing something a little bit harder and it's going to be a little bit of a better result or a result that will last longer. So in general, you know, my, my thinking is exercise is very good if you can do it. And you don't, you know, you don't want to be suffering an hour a day to feel a little bit better the rest of the time. So you want to be, you know, you can be challenged a little bit. You know, it's okay to 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 have a slightly effortful exercise, but it shouldn't be, you know, you should look reasonably good during and in the few hours that follow that exercise. So the more I read and learn and practice, the more flexible I am about uh, what people want to do with the idea that I don't want to be restrictive or too prescriptive. I want to let them do, you know, walking on a trail is probably, you know, the most amazing exercise if that's an option for people. The, the, The ground is relatively soft, dogs, they both do this repetitive exercise, yes, something that's not too hard on your legs, but is done a large number of times, that's what's going to strengthen you very well. But at the same time, it's not super straight and flat, so you're going to move a little bit side to side. You can imagine you're not only working on your strength, but you're working on your your core strength, in addition to your limb strength, because your body is kind of twisting gently. You you are shifting weight side to side, so you're working on your balance, your ability to feel the ground better. All these things can be impaired when you have osteoarthritis. So, variety is very good. Intensity is not too bad if you tolerate it, and your you know, and doing it regularly. We know that from exercise. If you if you exercise once a week, it's probably barely enough to kind of keep what you have, but you you know, it's much better to do a bit less of exercise, but do it three times a week or five times a week. Those are wonderful exercise programs. So if we can manage to implement that with the owner, have an owner that's alert, that does the right amount, that's done regularly, then then you succeed and you have something that can help for many years.
0: So it sounds like there's you know, some more ideal ways to exercise as far as duration, frequency, type. But ultimately, the correlation is move more, limp less. Unless, of course, you know, you have this dog you mentioned earlier where every time you throw the Frisbee, he limps for three days. Maybe that's that one we need to stay away from. But in general, just keeping these dogs moving in general. Some ways are better than others, but as long as, you know, if those aren't possible, just let them move.
1: Yeah, I I agree completely with you. And, and even that dog that limps for three days after the frisbee, they may be able to go on a walk and not limp at all. I mean, you know, I don't, I, I think the goal, if you want, is to flip it, is to say, let's just find a series of exercises that are just not going to, you know, harm. And, you know, you're doing the owner an enormous favor because you're using your experience to see how the dog is doing. Maybe train the dog to, you know, exercises can be a little bit more complicated. You know, most of the time we think every dog is naturally going to know what to do when they go on a walk, a leash walk or any kind of, you know, go in a body of water. But, you know, dogs can be trained and should be trained so they can engage in, you know, they, they want to learn, they want to do things the right way. So, you know, we can, we should really teach them to exercise at the same time as, Or before we teach the owner to exercise their dogs. And in some way, that's a service that, you know, I'm talking about something that's very rehab related, but that's something I learned, you know, doing rehab is that teaching the dog to exercise and then teaching the owner to exercise their dog is a recipe for long term success. And so, you know, everything that's done should be done well. Maybe I'd say one more thing about that is that we tend to, you know, always be in a bit of a hurry. Of course, we don't have a lot of time. So we say, you should exercise your dog. Well, that's kind of doomed to fail, if you want, because the owner really doesn't feel like they can recognize. First, they have no idea about, you know, intensity, duration, frequency, the details, the specific detail, the constraint, how they're going to hold their dogs. Maybe their dogs are pulling or get distracted or who knows you know you got to discuss that you you we we should you know the clinic the 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 healthcare team should really get to know the dog much better so they say this is what your dog looks like when they go on a leash walk. You know, we've trained them for you and we know this is what they look like when they get tired. And this is how quickly they get tired at this moment. It's, you know, that can be changed over time. But now that we really know your dog, we're going to teach you to exercise your dog. I mean, that's, we're talking about five sessions to learn the habits and 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 train a dog to exercise. And then, you know, maybe five sessions to do it with the owner. And now we have a lifetime of, one of the most powerful ways to maintain strength and and keep a dog going. So it's not for everyone. Some people just don't want to get into this, but it will be very beneficial over a lifetime. We, we, we're teaching somebody to, to do something useful. And everything, you know, the nutrition could be the same thing. If telling somebody that their dog is fat is insulting, it's going to make them angry. Uh, by any, you know, you're not going to achieve anything, but you want to have that roadmap to say, well, we're going to really look in that nutrition and we're going to help you get back to optimal body condition. And again, that might take five visits or 10 visits, doesn't matter. But if we can set up a good long term behavior with that, I mean, we've achieved something extremely beneficial over a lifetime as it relates to osteoarthritis and 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 other issues. so so uh, you know there's an incentive to be seeing these patients regularly and pace yourself, not blurt some your dog is fat or you should exercise more thing which is going nowhere, but we should rather say, how about we you know, you know being in good body condition and exercising regularly are very powerful. The literature is pretty clear. Would you like us to work together to achieve that? And, uh, you know, over the next few weeks, that is good medicine.
0: I feel like I could sit here and ask you 10 more questions about exercise and these client consultations and making plans for pets because there's so much to unpack there. But I feel like you gave us some really good tools for moving forward and getting away from someone called it and I adopted the term fire engine medicine and really practicing that preventative medicine and and helping these these pets out much earlier than we would be able to otherwise
1: yeah I agree with you a lot you know we in education communication trust that has to come before you know you don't want to earn trust and teach everything you know in one in 15 minute visit once a year now i'm going to teach you to lose weight to exercise to deliver pain relieving medications or choose them and decide all these things in in 30 seconds i mean that's never going to work it's unfortunate we you know we're not that good if you want and owners are not they're not (laughs) prepared for that kind of delivery so we want to do it over time we want you know osteoarthritis is very well manageable particularly if we start early, that's the key. And so that moment where that joint is swollen and we send the dog away, just crossing our fingers, that's a lost opportunity to be saying, well, uh, you know, that's not going to go away. You know, these elbows are going to have this elbow dysplasia, elbow osteoarthritis. Let's just be smart and de-dramatize it. It's not really, it's something that many dogs have and Plenty of dogs deal with quite well, so let's just get going on that and, and you know, do it progressively with the owner, not, not uh, waiting for a catastrophic progression and say, oh, we're going to just ignore it and be in complete denial until the dog can barely get up or the dog can't climb stairs anymore. I mean, we should really never get to the point where a dog cannot climb stairs because so many things can be done beforehand.
0: Absolutely. And I love this focus on catching things early and intervening early. And as much as I, like I said, I could sit here and talk to you for another hour and ask you all these questions I have about preventative care, but that might be a good spot to kind of wrap up just in the interest of time is catching things early. You know, obviously, if we have a dog who, you know, has slowed down, quote unquote, or can't get up the stairs, can't get in the car, is limping after playing frisbee, those are kind of obvious presentations. But we're talking about this is a progressive disease that starts early. How do we catch this early in our patients?
1: Yeah. So I'm going a little bit more of a, you know, forward and say to catch it early, you got to discuss it early. You know, you can't just like suddenly an owner has, doesn't even know what osteoarthritis is and you say oh your dog is osteoarthritis i mean they are going to freak out so you have to maybe mention uh, mobility and joint health before it becomes before you might even find it so you have to do it very early i mean i'm talking about at the moment of vaccinations you gotta say we know so much more about joint health and joint disease because a dog in four or five has that problem we are going to be discussing it a little bit here and there, and we're gonna really try to stay on top of it. You don't want to grow at the speed of light if you're a dog, because that's really bad for your joints. That's another myth. People want their dogs to grow as fast as possible. They look at rapid growth as a sign of health, and it's not. It's a it's a risk. It's a, so you want to grow at a regular. So you know, grow nutrition during growth is very important for osteoarthritis. You want to start talking about you know the fact that if you are mindful about osteoarthritis you can adjust its progression quite a bit uh, by uh, in, you know optimizing growth once again by preventing excess weight gains with again it's easier to prevent weight gain than it is to deal with once you have it and if you stay overweight for a long time your oa progression will be much more rapid pain management which is really you know the the main series of problems, they all related to joint pain. So pain management is critical. And as we know, acute pain, uh, short-term pain is much easier to treat than long-term pain. What we do by ignoring osteoarthritic pain for months and years is that we create ourselves some very deeply rooted pain situations where you know that and then, and then we insult the dog. We say, oh, he's a baby because, you know, now the dog oh, has allodynia. It has regional pain. The entire limb hurts, but dog is not a baby. The dog has been in pain for years. The dog is probably a lot tougher than the owner. I'm thinking, uh, keep going with with chronic pain. So we want to stay on top of pain. We want to make sure pain is controlled in the short term. So we can continue with an active lifestyle and 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 you know, and and staying strong. So, Early management is so much more convenient, so much less invasive, less expensive, and, and more effective. So there is really all the reasons in the world to be paying attention to the signs of osteoarthritis from the beginning. Because we make it progress less rapidly, and we do a better job treating it. It's really makes no sense to kind of ignore it until it becomes a disaster we don't want to do that i mean it's like your car you could just say i'm not gonna do anything to it until i see smoke coming out of the hood it's basically that's the way i was when i was about you know 18. i'm like no smoke out (laughs) of the hood we still we can do a few more miles with that oil. You can drown but, uh, out the, no-
0: the noise by turning up the radio.
1: Exactly. So <laughs> that's the same idea. So that's not. It makes sense that you wanna you wanna stay on top of things so osteoarthritis can be managed effectively. That we owe that to our pets.
0: It sounds like you're saying what is so important to remember in so many disease processes, and I think you know we we could all use the reminder here and there that our pets our patients they they come on a leash or in a carrier they come attached to an owner and really communicating and being proactive with client communication can do a world of good for our patients
1: yeah absolutely it's it's key that you know at the end of the day it's going to have we're going to have to have a good relationship with the owner good communication path if it takes 2 weeks to respond to an owner or multiple weeks to get an appointment when they have a flare up, you know, the owner are going to feel bad and we're sending the wrong signal. I like to delegate the management along the way. You know, as a vet, you've done the diagnosis, but you need a technician. If you have a technician in your team that can be the case manager, just like a nurse would be keeping up with a patient, then you want to know that uh, the owner is not overwhelmed. They're staying on top of their pain medication schedule as needed. They're going to stay on top of their nutritional needs of the dog and their exercise needs. If they do that, you know, then things are going to be on cruise control. You know, dogs should be evaluated. They don't have to be evaluated every five minutes if, Everything is going well, but the communication has to be a little bit more sustained, you know, so we know, I know I'm thinking for somebody to touch base with the owner of a dog with osteoarthritis monthly and make sure everything is good or be on standby if the owner has a question, it's probably very good medicine. It's going to be, you know, a good business decision also because a lot of dogs are untreated. And again, because... You really are shooting yourself in the foot if you're waiting for osteoarthritis to become very severe to treat it because, you know, you're going to have fewer options and it'll be less successful. So you, you do better medicine, you have happier clients, you have better results if you communicate very regularly.
0: Absolutely. Well, Dr. Marcelin Little, I could sit here and continue to ask you questions, but I know that you know we're reaching the end of our time and we do have to wrap up. So, let me just end with is there what what's one thing you want all of us out there to know and to remember about treating osteoarthritis in our patients?
1: I want people to be flexible. I want them to be prepared, uh, understanding that osteoarthritis is not a geriatric disease that makes dog paralyzed. There are many, many things and most things need to happen before we reach these advanced uh, stages. I want people to discuss it with owners you know, as early as possible and, and stay proactive. Think about understanding that tailoring nutrition exercise, having a pain medication that they can use, Uh, as needed when, uh, you know, and not delay or not avoid uh, giving pain medications when dogs need it uh, is a way to stay on top of the disease. Keeping dogs mobile, keeping them relatively fit, exercising them regularly are by far the most important things that can be done in managing osteoarthritis.
0: Wonderful. Well, I appreciate it. The conversation so much. I have really enjoyed it and I've learned a lot. So I'm you know, I'm hopeful and excited for our listeners that they'll take away as much from this conversation as I have.
1: Thank you for having me. I was delighted to share these thoughts. Thank you.
0: Prevention, client communication, exercise, so many things that are just integral to managing these arthritis patients. Dr. Marcelin Little, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you to Elenco for making this episode possible. And of course, thank you to all of you for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this talk, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.